Good morning. Again, good to see you all. I actually have on the side of mine, I have the participant list all popped up and it looks a little bit like a Christmas tree or some Christmas lights. Kind of nice. It's a happy uh, second Sunday of Advent surprise. Advent is often characterized as a season of waiting and anticipation. Last week, we read in Luke about Mary as the angel tells her that she's going to be pregnant with the son of God. And Mary, as a virgin, is obviously shocked by the news. And so then she begins awaiting for the birth of Jesus. Advent this year, we are looking at four different groups within Judaism. How did they wait for the Messiah? How did they prepare for the Messiah? What did they do? Were they patient? Were they complacent? Um, were they content with the way things were and they didn't want to disrupt anything? Or did they go about trying to dominate and to control the things around them? These four groups are the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Pharisees. Last week, we talked about the Essenes and how their typical method of operation was to withdraw and to retreat. Whenever there was tension or conflict, they were to withdraw and retreat, and, and something that I can resonate with myself as well. But for the Essenes, the thing that counteracted that was hope. What does it look like to be hopeful in the world around us? That there's a hope that exists beyond simply just us and the things that we can control. But there's hope in the world around us. Now, what I think says a lot about us is how we wait. Are we anxious and tend to withdraw? Do we exert power and try to control and micromanage the things around us? What does it look like for us to be patient or are we impatient people? Right now, it feels like we're caught in between two things. Where we were pre-coronavirus and where we want to be after the coronavirus. Or where we are now or, and where we want to be going. There's a lot, I think, that says about us of the posture that we have while we wait. This week, we look at the zealots. While the first organization of the zealots wasn't until AD 6, 6 AD, um, their roots and their imagination go back a couple hundred years before that, beginning in AD 167. So this is going to be a little bit of a history lesson, so stick with me. In AD 167, we have an old Jewish priest by the name of Matthias. He was told to sacrifice an on, on an unlawful and a pagan altar to the Greek gods. He did not want to do this, and so he refused, and he actually killed the two priests and the presiding soldiers that were there. And as he has done this, he now retreats into the desert um, with some of his sons. At this time, the Jews were under the rule of the Seleucid Empire. So Matthias and his now five sons have now fled into the desert, and this is where they start to gather a band of rebel soldiers together. And they're actually consistently beating larger Syrian armies because the Syrians are distracted by other wars elsewhere. And so they actually gain some control and Matthias eventually dies, but his sons take over. And the Syrian commander, they were occupied with other insurrections that they didn't give a lot of attention to Matthias and his sons. And so they continued to win battles. They continued to gain control and to gain different temples. And now this was actually a crucial stage within Judaism. It's considered the Maccabean revolt. And for many Jews, it's still looked back on as kind of an, a golden age. They had some liberation, they had freedom. And this is where the imagination of the zealots begin. They want to 
capture and recapture what the Maccabean revolt has, which was freedom from any kind of Greek and Gentile and Roman influence. They wanted to be completely on their own. Zealots were known for their uncompromising hatred for Rome. They were an aggressive political party and even opposed Jewish, Jewish sects and saw alignment with Rome. So zealots, it wouldn't be uncommon for them to oppose the Sadducees or the Pharisees. They officially formed in 86 by Judas of Galilee, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot, who we'll get to in a second. And this is where their extremism begins. At the height of their presence in Rome, they were known for frequent, to, they would go into to public places, and they, would, they would have hidden daggers within their cloaks, and they would kill sympathizers within Rome. In AD 73, this is the last that we see of the zealots. They're trapped in a fortress in Masada, and rather than surrender, they all decide to die by suicide. And so zealots, they would confront any kind of opposition. They would confront it directly and often violently. They believed that they could establish the reign of God by breaking the yoke of tyranny. In this case, it was the yoke of Rome. They were so motivated by purity, specifically a purity of Israel. Thus, this is their hatred for Rome and Gentiles in general. They would enforce their beliefs on others. And if that wasn't working, it would happen through violence. With the success of the Maccabean revolt and the imagination that they could be delivered and they could be, again, an independent place, they consistently fought and rebelled. Rather than waiting for a Messiah, they believed that they could actually usher in God's kingdom through force and through violence. What we see of zealots in the Bible, we have reason to believe that Simon was a zealot, Simon, one of the disciples of Jesus. Though it's possible that this reference of zealots is that of simply being zealous, which is where their name comes from. We're not certain whether it is he is simply a zealous person or he was a zealot. There was reason to believe that Barabbas was actually a zealot. The one who the crowd demands that they release to them rather than Jesus is Barabbas. And it's believed that he was to be a zealot. Josephus, who's one of the uh, historians that writes a lot about this time back in the first century, says that the same word used to describe Barabbas in his work is the same that we have in the New Testament. So it's possible to believe that Barabbas was a zealot. It's also possible to believe that Judas Iscariot was a zealot himself and that his betrayal of Jesus was to spurn Jesus into action and spurn him into violence. Remember that they thought a Messiah was coming and this Messiah would be a violent, powerful soldier. And so it's possible that the betrayal of Jesus was to usher in again this kingdom from the zealot's perspective. They're violent and they're relentless. They sought control through enforcing their, their will. They sought power by any means necessary. They, they weren't patient by any stretch of the imagination. Rather, they took matters into their own hands. Over the last eight to nine months, I suspect there's been a time when you've wanted to take matters into your own hands. Maybe it's been the thought of like, if I were in charge, these are the things that we would do and the coronavirus would be gone. Or how is that person in charge? They don't deserve that. We often think that if we had the power and if we had the control, we could do so much better than the people around us. Maybe it's not been about the coronavirus. Maybe it's been about a job or maybe there's difficulty within family gatherings. As if family gatherings weren't challenging enough, throw a pandemic on top of it. 
often things are feeling like they are chaotic and uncertain and so out of control. And so we grasp in so many different ways what that can control can look like. For the zealots, this was done through violence. While I assume none of you are secretly carrying around daggers and assassinating people, I think we've all found ways that we can try to exert control into whatever area of our life it might be, whether it's relationships, whether it's simply our house and the way that our house looks and the way that it feels. Maybe it's even our job. There's often times and places where we are trying to exert some sort of power and control because it gives us a sense of belonging. It gives us a sense of purpose and it gives us a sense of safety. And we all want that version of safety. One of the things that I love about this first chapter of Luke is that it's riddled with hope and anticipation. We have two pregnancies. One is literally impossible, the pregnancy of the Virgin Mary, and the other is unlikely the best that we know. Last week, we talked about Mary and how the angel comes and says that she will give birth to the Son of God. Now comes the time when the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest and he and his wife, Elizabeth, they were childless. And the text says that they were old. We don't know how old they are, but the text just says that they were old. And he comes and says that you will give birth to a son. And Zechariah doesn't believe this. And so the angel takes away Zechariah's ability to speak. And so Elizabeth does become pregnant with a child. And so we have a virgin who is pregnant and we have an old woman who is pregnant and both eagerly await with anticipation and with hope the arrival of their children. After Elizabeth gives birth, the custom was to go to the temple on the eighth day for their son to be circumcised. So they do this. And at this point, Zachariah still can't speak. So the people are asking them, what is going to be his name? And Elizabeth says that the name is going to be John. And they wonder, there's no other John in your family. Is this truly the name? To which Zechariah writes it down and confirms it. And at this point, he is now able to speak. And this is what he says. This is rather what he sings. This is our text for us today. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house and his servants. As he, said long, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy for our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. I wish the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the path of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We see in Zechariah's songs are promises of rescue and salvation, promises that those will not rule us with fear, promises of a Messiah that is going to come and going to deliver his people, a Messiah that's going to be an instrument of God's mercy. 
And this is language that is familiar to us. And it would have been familiar to people back then in the first century, because this is often language that's used to refer to as Rome, to refer to the emperor, to refer to Caesar, that they were our saviors, that they were those who brought salvation. They were those who brought rescue. But we know that that is not true. And we know that Jesus is the one that brings this to us. These beautiful words of Zechariah. Rome certainly rules through fear and through power. And Jesus does not rule that way. In fact, at this time, what was happening throughout the world was called Pax Romana. It's the peace of Rome where there was relative peace for about 200 years. And the reason that this peace existed, not because there was such a peaceful time, but is because Rome was so powerful and Rome was to be feared. Anyone who rose up against them, they would crush. And so there was peace because there was no opposition. But Zechariah's closing line is beautiful. He says, the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. Jesus is coming and brings an alternative to violence and peace through violence. Not just violence, but the misconception that peace only comes through violence and through power. What Rome and many others have believed is that violence could beget peace. But rather, I believe that violence always gives way to more violence. Now, Jesus has come to bring peace and not peace through violence or coercion, but peace through service and through humility. Stanley Howaross, who is a a writer and theologian, he writes pretty extensively about the nonviolent response of Christians. And in this quote, he, he compares that and talks about Advent as well. Christians are called to be to nonviolence, not because we believe nonviolence is a strategy to rid the world of war, but in a world of war as faithful followers of Christ, we cannot imagine being anything other than nonviolent. And that will make the world possibly more violent because the world does not want the order it calls peace exposed for as violence it is so often is. Now, learning how to wait as a people of nonviolence in a world of war, you'll learn what Advent is. Advent is patience. It's how God has made us a people of promise in a world of impatience. And Christ has made that possible for us to live patiently in a world of impatience. What Howard Ross reveals and what Rome is trying to do is that peace cannot be achieved through violence and through power. And now this season of Advent, we're learning how to wait. And as a people of nonviolence in a world of war, you'll learn what Advent is. And Advent is patience and Advent is peace and Advent is hope. War might not be a physical war, but war for us could very much be a war for our time and attention. There's a spiritual battle going on around us. There is war everywhere. Maybe it's not a physical battle but there are things that are constantly battling for our affections. There are things that are constantly battling for our loves. But to live in peace and to live patiently is to combat the many wars that are going on in the world around us. 
when the temptation creeps in to control, to micromanage, may we be filled with peace. May we be filled with patience. There will be many times throughout the season and in the coming months where the temptation will be to control, to exert our power, to have some shred of control that makes us feel safe and makes us feel comfortable. But my prayer for you and my hope for us as a church is summarized in this quote that we'll have from now and as we end here. He says, keep your eyes on him who becomes poor with the poor, weak with the weak, and who is rejected with the rejected. He is the source of all peace. May this Advent season, may you find peace in Christ so that you are the source of peace for those around you.